Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 12 of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 12. Camp Lawrence. Beth was postmistress, for being most at home she could attend to it regularly, and dearly liked the daily task of unlocking the little door and distributing the mail. One July day she came in with her hands full, and went about the house leaving letters and parcels like the penny post. "'Here's your posy, mother. Laurie never forgets that,' she said, putting the fresh nosegay in the vase that stood in Marmy's corner, and was kept supplied by the affectionate boy. "'Miss Meg March. One letter and a glove,' continued Beth delivering the articles to her sister, who sat near her mother stitching wristbands. "'Why, I left a pair over there, and here is only one,' said Meg, looking at the grey cotton glove. "'Didn't you drop the other in the garden?' "'No, I'm sure I didn't, for there was only one in the office.' "'I hate to have odd gloves. Never mind, the other may be found. My letter is only a translation of the German song I wanted. I think Mr. Brooke did it, for this isn't Laurie's writing." Mrs. March glanced at Meg, who was looking very pretty in her gingham morning gown, with the little curls blowing about her forehead, and very womanly, as she sat sewing at her little work-table, full of tidy white rolls, so unconscious of the thought in her mother's mind as she sewed and sang, while her fingers flew and her thoughts were busied with girlish fancies as innocent and fresh as the pansies in her belt, that Mrs. March smiled and was satisfied. Two letters for Dr. Joe, a book, and a funny old hat, which covered the whole post-office and stuck outside," said Beth, laughing as she went into the study where Joe sat writing. "'What a sly fellow Laurie is! I said I wished bigger hats were the fashion, because I burn my face every hot day. He said, why mind the fashion? Wear a big hat and be comfortable. I said I would if I had one, and he has sent me this to try me. I'll wear it for fun, and show him I don't care for the fashion." And hanging the antique broad-brim on a bust of Plato, Jo read her letters. One from her mother made her cheeks glow and her eyes fill, for it said to her, "'My dear, I write a little word to tell you with how much satisfaction I watch your efforts to control your temper. You say nothing about your trials, failures, or successes, and think perhaps that no one sees them but the friend whose help you daily ask, if I may trust the well-worn cover of your guide-book. I, too, have seen them all, and heartily believe in the sincerity of your resolution, since it begins to bear fruit. Go on, dear, patiently and bravely, and always believe that no one sympathizes more tenderly with you than your loving mother." That does me good. That's worth millions of money and pecks of praise. Oh, Marmy, I do try. I will keep on trying and not get tired, since I have you to help me." Laying her head on her arms, Jo wet her little romance with a few happy tears, for she had thought that no one saw and appreciated her efforts to be good, and this assurance was doubly precious, doubly encouraging, because unexpected 
and from the person whose commendation she most valued. Feeling stronger than ever to meet and subdue her Apollyon, she pinned the note inside her frock, as a shield and reminder, lest she be taken unaware, and proceeding to open her other letter, quite ready for either good or bad news. In a big, dashing hand, Laurie wrote, Dear Joe, What ho! Some English girls and boys are coming to see me tomorrow, and I want to have a jolly time. If it's fine, I'm going to pitch my tent in Longmeadow, and row up the whole crew to lunch and croquet. Have a fire, make messes, gypsy fashion, and all sorts of larks. They are nice people and like such things. Brooke will go to keep us boys steady, and Kate Vaughan will play propriety for the girls. I want you all to come. Can't let Beth off at any price, and nobody shall worry her. Don't bother about rations. I'll see to that and everything else. Only do come. There's a good fellow. In a tearing hurry, yours ever, Laurie. Here's richness, cried Joe, flying to tell the news to Meg. Of course we can go, mother. It'll be such a help to Laurie, for I can row and Meg see to the lunch, and the children be useful in some way. I hope the Vaughns are not fine grown-up people. Do you know anything about them, Joe? asked Meg. Only that there are four of them. Kate is older than you, Fred and Frank, twins, about my age, and a little girl, Grace, who is nine or ten. Laurie knew them abroad and liked the boys. I fancied, from the way he primmed up his mouth in speaking of her, that he didn't admire Kate much. I'm so glad my French print is clean. It's just the thing and so becoming," observed Meg complacently. Have you anything decent, Joe? Scarlet and grey boating suit. Good enough for me. I shall row and tramp about so I don't want any starch to think of. You'll come, Betty? If you won't let any boys talk to me. Not a boy. I like to please Laurie. And I'm not afraid of Mr. Brooke. He's so kind. But I don't want to play or, or sing or say anything. I'll work hard and not trouble anyone, and you'll take care of me, Joe. So I'll go." That's my good girl. You do try to fight off your shyness, and I love you for it. Fighting faults isn't easy, as I know, and a cheery word gives a kind of lift. Thank you, mother." And Joe gave the thin cheek a grateful kiss, more precious to Mrs. March than if it had given back the rosy roundness of her youth. I had a box of chocolate drops and the picture I wanted to copy said Amy, showing her mail. And I got a note from Mr. Lawrence, asking me to come over and play to him tonight, before the lamps are lighted. And I shall go," added Beth, whose friendship with the old gentleman prospered finely. Now let's fly round and do double duty to-day, so that we can play to-morrow with free minds," said Joe, preparing to replace her pen with a broom. When the sun peeped into the girls' room next morning to promise them a fine day, he saw a comical sight. Each had made such preparation for the fete as seemed necessary and proper. Meg had an extra row of little curl-papers across her forehead. Joe had copiously anointed her afflicted face with cold-cream. Beth had taken Joanna to bed with her to atone for the approaching separation, and Amy had capped the climax by putting a clothespin on her nose to uplift the offending feature. It was one of the kind artists used to hold the paper on their drawing-boards, therefore quite appropriate and effective for the purpose it was now being put. This funny spectacle appeared to amuse the sun, for he burst out with such radiance that Joe woke up and roused her sisters by a hearty laugh at Amy's ornament. Sunshine and laughter were good omens for a pleasure party, and soon a lively bustle began in both houses. 
Beth, who was ready first, kept reporting what went on next door, and enlivened her sister's toilets by frequent telegrams from the window. "'There goes the man with the tent. I see Mrs. Barker doing up the lunch in a hamper and a great basket. Now Mr. Lawrence is looking up at the sky and the weathercock. I wish he would go, too. There's Laurie, looking like a sailor, nice boy. Oh, mercy me, here's a carriage full of people, a tall lady, a little girl, and two dreadful boys. One is lame, poor thing, he's got a crutch. Laurie didn't tell us that. Be quick, girls, it's getting late. Why, there's Ned Moffat, I do declare. Meg, isn't that the man who bowed to you one day when we were shopping? So it is. How queer that he should come. I thought he was at the mountains. There is Sally. I'm glad she got back in time. Am I all right, Joe? cried Meg in a flutter. A regular daisy. Hold up your dress and put your hat on straight. It looks sentimental tipped that way and will fly off at the first puff. Now then, come on. Oh, Joe, you are not going to wear that awful hat. It's too absurd. You shall not make a guy of yourself, remonstrated Meg, as Joe tied down with a red ribbon the broad-brimmed, old-fashioned leghorn Laurie had sent for a joke. I just will, though, for it's capital, so shady, light, and big. It will make fun, and I don't mind being a guy if I'm comfortable. With that, Joe marched straight away, and the rest followed, a bright little band of sisters, all looking their best in summer suits, with happy faces under jaunty hat-brims. Laurie ran to meet and present them to his friends in the most cordial manner. The lawn was the reception-room, and for several minutes a lively scene was enacted there. Meg was grateful to see that Miss Kate, though twenty, was dressed with a simplicity which American girls would do well to imitate, and who was much flattered by Mr. Ned's assurances that he came especially to see her. Joe understood why Laurie primmed up his mouth when speaking of Kate, for that young lady had a stand-off-don't-touch-me air which contrasted strongly with the free and easy demeanour of the other girls. Beth took an observation of the new boys, and decided that the lame one was not dreadful, but gentle and feeble, and she would be kind to him on that account. Amy found Grace a well-mannered, merry little person, and after staring dumbly at one another for a few minutes, they suddenly became good friends. Tents, lunch, and croquet utensils having been sent on beforehand, the party was soon embarked, and the two boats pushed off together, leaving Mr. Lawrence waving his hat on the shore. Laurie and Joe rowed one boat, Mr. Brooke and Ned the other, while Fred Vaughan, the riotous twin, did his best to upset both by paddling about in a wherry like a disturbed water-bug. Joe's funny hat deserved a vote of thanks, for it was of general utility. It broke the ice in the beginning by producing a laugh, it created quite a refreshing breeze, flapping to and fro as she rode, and would make an excellent umbrella for the whole party, if a shower came up, she said. Miss Kate decided that she was odd, but rather clever, and smiled upon her from afar. Meg, in the other boat, was delightfully situated, face to face with the rowers, who both admired the prospect and feathered their oars with uncommon skill and dexterity. Mr. Brooke was a grave, silent young man, with handsome brown eyes and a pleasant voice. Meg liked his quiet manners, and considered him a walking encyclopedia of useful knowledge. He never talked to her much, but he looked at her a good deal, and she felt sure that he did not regard her with aversion. Ned, being in college, of course, put on all the airs which freshmen think it their bounden duty to assume. He was not very wise, but very good-natured and altogether an excellent person to carry on a picnic. 
Sally Gardiner was absorbed in keeping her white piquet dress clean, and chattering with the ubiquitous Fred, who kept Beth in constant terror by his pranks. It was not far to Longmeadow, but the tent was pitched and the wickets down by the time they arrived. A pleasant green field with three wide-spreading oaks in the middle, and a smooth strip of turf for croquet. "'Welcome to Camp Lawrence!' said the young host, as they landed with exclamations of delight. "'Brooke is commander-in-chief. I am commissary-general. The other fellows are staff officers, and you, ladies, are company. The tent is for your especial benefit, and that oak is your drawing-room. This is the mess-room, and the third is the camp-kitchen. Now let's have a game before it gets hot, and then we'll see about dinner.' Frank, Beth, Amy, and Grace sat down to watch the game played by the other eight. Mr. Brooke chose Meg, Kate, and Fred. Lorry took Sally, Joe, and Ned. The English played well, but the Americans played better, and contested every inch of the ground as strongly as if the spirit of seventy-six inspired them. Joe and Fred had several skirmishes, and once narrowly escaped high words. Joe was through the last wicket and had missed the stroke, which failure ruffled her a good deal. Fred was close behind her, and his turn came before hers. He gave a stroke, his ball hit the wicket, and stopped an inch on the wrong side. No one was very near, and running up to examine, he gave it a sly nudge with his toe, which put it just an inch on the right side. "'I'm through. Now, Miss Joe, I'll settle you and get him first. cried the young gentleman, swinging his mallet for another blow. "'You pushed it. I saw you. It's my turn now,' said Joe sharply. "'Upon my word, I didn't move it. It rolled a bit, perhaps, but that is allowed. So stand off, please, and let me have a go at the stake.' "'We don't cheat in America, but you can if you choose,' said Joe angrily. "'Yankees are a deal the most tricky, everybody knows.' "'There you go,' returned Fred, croqueting her ball far away. Joe opened her lips to say something rude, but checked herself in time, coloured up to her forehead, and stood a minute, hammering down a wicket with all her might, while Fred hit the stake and declared himself out with much exultation. She went off to get her ball, and was a long time finding it among the bushes, but she came back looking cool and quiet, and waited her turn patiently. It took several strokes to regain the place she had lost, and when she got there the other side had nearly won, for Kate's ball was the last but one, and lay near the stake. "'By George, it's all up with us. Good-bye, Kate. Miss Joe owes me one, so you are finished,' cried Fred excitedly, as they all drew near to see the finish. "'Yankees have a trick of being generous to their enemies,' said Joe, with a look that made the lad redden. "'Especially when they beat them,' she added, as, leaving Kate's ball untouched, she won the game by a clever stroke. Laurie threw up his hat, then remembered that it wouldn't do to exult over the defeat of his guests, and stopped in the middle of the cheer to whisper to his friend. "'Good for you, Joe. He did cheat. I saw him. We can't tell him so, but he won't do it again. Take my word for it.' Meg drew her aside, under pretense of pinning up a loose braid, and said approvingly, "'It was dreadfully provoking, but you kept your temper, and I'm so glad, Joe.' "'Don't praise me, Meg, for I could box his ears this minute. I should certainly have boiled over if I hadn't stayed among the nettles till I got my rage under control enough to hold my tongue. It's simmering now, so I hope he'll keep out of my way,' returned Joe, biting her lips as she glowered at Fred from under her big hat. "'Time for lunch.' said Mr. Brooke, looking at his watch. "'Commissary General, will you make the fire and get water, while Miss March, Miss Sally, and I spread the table? 
Who can make good coffee? Joe can, said Meg, glad to recommend her sister. So Joe, feeling that her late lessons in cookery were to do her honour, went to preside over the coffee-pot, while the children collected dry sticks, and the boys made a fire and got water from a spring nearby. Miss Kate sketched and Frank talked to Beth, who was making little mats of braided rushes to serve as plates. The commander-in-chief and his aides soon spread the tablecloth with an inviting array of eatables and drinkables, prettily decorated with green leaves. Joe announced that the coffee was ready, and everyone settled themselves to a hearty meal, for youth is seldom dyspeptic, and exercise develops wholesome appetites. A very merry lunch it was, for everything seemed fresh and funny, and frequent peals of laughter startled a venerable horse who fed nearby. There was a pleasing inequality in the table, which produced many mishaps to cups and plates, acorns dropped in the milk, little black ants partook of the refreshments without being invited, and fuzzy caterpillars swung down from the tree to see what was going on. Three white-headed children peeped over the fence, and an objectionable dog barked at them from the other side of the river with all his might and main. "'There's salt there,' said Lorry, as he handed Joe a saucer of berries. "'Thank you. I prefer spiders,' she replied, fishing up two little unwary ones who had gone to a creamy death. "'How dare you remind me of that horrid dinner-party, when yours is so nice in every way!' added Joe, as they both laughed and ate out of one plate, the china having run short. "'I had an uncommonly good time that day, and haven't got over it yet. This is no credit to me, you know. I don't do anything.' It's you and Meg and Brooke who make it all go, and I'm no end obliged to you. What shall we do when we can't eat any more? asked Laurie, feeling that his trump card had been played when lunch was over. Have games till it's cooler. I brought authors, and I dare say Miss Kate knows something new and nice. Go ask her. She's company, and you ought to stay with her more. Aren't you company, too? I thought she'd suit Brooke, but he keeps talking to Meg and Kate just stares at them through that ridiculous glass of hers. I'm going, so you needn't try to preach propriety, for you can't do it, Joe." Miss Kate did know several games, and as the girls would not, and the boys could not, eat any more, they all adjourned to the drawing-room to play rigmarole. One person begins a story, any nonsense you like, and tells as long as he pleases, only taking care to stop short at some exciting point, when the next takes it up and does the same. It's very funny when well done, and makes a perfect jumble of tragical-comical stuff to laugh over. Please start it, Mr. Brooke," said Kate, with a commanding air which surprised Meg, who treated the tutor with as much respect as any other gentleman. Lying on the grass at the feet of the two young ladies, Mr. Brooke obediently began the story, with the handsome brown eyes steadily fixed upon the sunshiny river. Once on a time. A knight went out into the world to seek his fortune, for he had nothing but his sword and his shield. He travelled a long while, nearly eight-and-twenty years, and had a hard time of it, till he came to the palace of a good old king, who had offered a reward to anyone who could tame and train a fine but unbroken colt, of which he was very fond. The knight agreed to try, and got on slowly but surely, for the colt was a gallant fellow, and soon learned to love his new master though he was freakish and wild. Every day, when he gave his lessons to this pet of the king's, the knight rode him through the city, and as he rode he looked everywhere for a certain beautiful face, which he had seen many times in his dreams, but never found. One day, as he went prancing down a quiet street, he saw at the window of a ruinous castle the lovely face. He was delighted, inquired who lived in this old castle, 
and was told that several captive princesses were kept there by a spell, and spun all day to lay up money to buy their liberty. The knight wished intensely that he could free them, but he was poor and could only go by each day, watching for the sweet face and longing to see it out in the sunshine. At last he resolved to get into the castle and ask how he could help them. He went and knocked. The great door flew open, and he beheld... A ravishingly lovely lady, who exclaimed with a cry of rapture, At last! At last! continued Kate, who had read French novels and admired the style. "'Tis she! cried Count Gustave, and fell at her feet in an ecstasy of joy. Oh, rise! she said, extending a hand of marble fairness. Never! till you tell me how I may rescue you, swore the knight, still kneeling. Alas! My cruel fate condemns me to remain here till my tyrant is destroyed. Where is the villain? In the mauve salon, go, brave heart, and save me from despair. I obey, and return, victorious or dead. With these thrilling words he rushed away, and flinging open the door of the mauve salon, was about to enter, when he received... A stunning blow from the big Greek lexan, which an old fellow in a black gown fired at him, said Ned. Instantly, Sir What's-His-Name recovered himself, pitched a tyrant out of the window, and turned to join the lady, victorious, but with a bump on his brow, found the door locked, tore up the curtains, made a rope ladder, got halfway down when the ladder broke, and he went headfirst into the moat, sixty feet below, could swim like a duck, paddled around the castle till he came to a little door guarded by two stout fellers, knocked their heads together till they cracked like a couple of nuts, then, by a trifling exertion of his prodigious strength, he smashed in the door, went up a pair of stone steps covered with a dust a foot thick, toes as big as your fist, and spiders that would frighten you in hysterics, Miss March. At the top of these steps he came plump upon a sight that took his breath away and chilled his blood. A tall figure all in white with a veil over its face and a lamp in its wasted hand, went on Meg. It beckoned, gliding noiselessly before him down a corridor as dark and cold as any tomb. Shadowy effigies in armor stood on either side, a dead silence reigned, the lamp burned blue, and the ghostly figure ever and anon turned its face toward him, showing the glitter of awful eyes through its white veil. They reached a curtain door, behind which sounded lovely music. He sprang forward to enter, but the specter plucked him back, and waved threateningly before him a— Snuff-box, said Joe, in a sepulchral tone which convulsed the audience. Thank ye said the knight politely, as he took a pinch and sneezed seven times so violently that his head fell off. Ha! ha! laughed the ghost, and having peeped through the keyhole at the princesses spinning away for dear life, the evil spirit picked up her victim and put him in a large tin box, where there were eleven other knights packed together without their heads, like sardines, who all rose and began to— Dance a hornpipe, cut in Fred, as Joe paused for breath. And as they danced, the rubbishy old castle turned to a man of war in full sail. Up with the jib, reef the topsail, halyards, helm hard a lee, and man the guns, roared the captain, as a Portuguese pirate hove in sight, with a flag black as ink flying from her foremast. Go in and win, my hearties, says the captain, and a tremendous fight began. Of course, the British beat, they always do. No, they don't, cried Joe aside. 
having taken the pirate captain prisoner, sailed slap over the schooner whose decks were piled high with dead and whose lee scuppers ran blood, for the order had been cut lasses and die hard. Bosun's mate, take a bite of the flying jib sheet and start this villain if he doesn't confess his sins double quick, said the British captain. The Portuguese held his tongue like a brick and walked the plank, while the jolly tars cheered like mad. But the sly dog dived, came up under the man of war, scuttled her, and down she went with all sail set to the bottom of the sea, 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 where. Oh, gracious, what shall I say? cried Sally as Fred ended his rigmarole, in which he had jumbled together pell mell nautical phrases and facts out of one of his favourite books. Well, they went to the bottom, and a nice mermaid welcomed them but was much grieved on finding the box of headless knights, and kindly pickled them in brine, hoping to discover the mystery about them, for, being a woman, she was curious. By and by, a diver came down, and the mermaid said, I'll give you a box of pearls if you take it up, for she wanted to restore the poor things to life, and couldn't raise the heavy load herself. So the diver hoisted it up, and was much disappointed on opening it to find no pearls. He left it in a great lonely field, where it was found by a little goose girl who kept a hundred fat geese in the field," said Amy, when Sally's invention gave out. The little girl was sorry for them, and asked an old woman what she should do to help them. "'Your geese will tell you. They know everything,' said the old woman. So she asked what she should use for new heads, since the old ones were lost, and all the geese opened their hundred mouths and screamed, "'Cabbages!' continued Laurie promptly. Just the thing, said the girl, and ran to get twelve fine ones from her garden. She put them on, the knights revived at once, thanked her, and went on their way rejoicing, never knowing the difference, for there were so many other heads like them in the world that no one thought anything of it. The knight in whom I'm interested went back to find the pretty face, and learned that the princesses had spun themselves free and all gone and married but one. He was in a great state of mind at that and mounting the colt who stood by him through thick and thin rushed to the castle to see what was left peeping over the hedge he saw the queen of his affections picking flowers in her garden will you give me a rose said he you must come and get it i can't come to you it isn't proper said she as sweet as honey he tried to climb over the hedge but it seemed to grow higher and higher then he tried to push through but it grew thicker and thicker and he was in despair, so he patiently broke twig after twig till he had made a little hole through which he peeped, saying imploringly, Let me in, let me in. But the pretty princess did not seem to understand, for she picked her roses quietly and left him to fight his way in. Whether or not he did, Frank will tell you. I can't. I'm not playing. I never do said Frank, dismayed at the sentimental predicament out of which he was to rescue the absurd couple. Beth had disappeared behind Joe, and Grace was asleep. "'So the poor knight is to be left sticking in the hedge, is he?' asked Mr. Brooke, still watching the river and playing with the wild rose in his buttonhole. "'I guess the princess gave him a posy and opened the gate after a while,' said Laurie, smiling to himself as he threw acorns at his tutor. "'What a piece of nonsense we have made!' With practice we might do something quite clever. Do you know truth? I hope so, said Meg soberly. The game, I mean. What is it? said Fred. Why, you pile up your hands, choose a number, and draw out in turn. 
and the person who draws at the number has to answer truly any question put by the rest. It's great fun. Let's try it, said Joe, who liked new experiments. Miss Kate and Mr. Brooke, Meg and Ned declined, but Fred, Sally, Joe, and Laurie piled and drew, and the lot fell to Laurie. Who are your heroes? asked Joe. Grandfather and Napoleon. Which lady here do you think the prettiest? said Sally. Margaret. Which do you like best? from Fred. Joe, of course. What silly questions you ask! And Joe gave a disdainful shrug as the rest laughed at Laurie's matter-of-fact tone. Try again. Truth isn't a bad game, said Fred. It's a very good one for you, retorted Joe in a low voice. Her turn came next. What is your greatest fault? asked Fred, by way of testing in her the virtue he lacked himself. A quick temper. What do you most wish for? said Laurie. A pair of boot-lacings, returned Joe, guessing and defeating his purpose. Not a true answer. You must say what you really do want most. Genius. Don't you wish you could give it to me, Laurie? And she slyly smiled in his disappointed face. What virtues do you most admire in a man? asked Sally. Courage and honesty. Now my turn, said Fred, as his hand came last. Let's give it to him, whispered Laurie to Joe, who nodded and asked at once, Didn't you cheat at croquet? Well, yes, a little bit. Good. Didn't you take your story out of the sea lion? said Laurie. Rather. Don't you think the English nation perfect in every respect? asked Sally. I should be ashamed of myself if I didn't. <laughs> He's a true John Bull. Now, Miss Sally, you shall have a chance without waiting to draw. I'll harrow up your feelings first by asking if you didn't think you were something of a flirt," said Laurie, as Joe nodded to Fred as a sign that peace was declared. "'You impertinent boy! Of course I'm not!' exclaimed Sally, with an air that proved the contrary. "'What do you hate most?' asked Fred. "'Spiders and rice pudding.' "'What do you like best?' asked Joe. "'Dancing and French gloves.' "'Well, I think truth is a very silly play. Let's have a sensible game of authors to refresh our minds," proposed Joe. Ned, Frank, and the little girls joined in this, and while it went on the three elders sat apart talking. Miss Kate took out her sketch again, and Margaret watched her, while Mr. Brooke lay on the grass with a book which he did not read. "'How beautifully you do it! I wish I could draw,' said Meg, with mingled admiration and regret in her voice. "'Why don't you learn? I should think you had taste and talent for it.' replied Miss Kate graciously. I haven't time. Your mamma prefers other accomplishments, I fancy. So did mine, but I proved to her that I had talents by taking a few lessons privately, and then she was quite willing I should go on. Can't you do the same with your governess? I have none. I forgot young ladies in America go to school more than with us. Very fine schools they are too, Papa says. You go to a private one, I suppose. I don't go at all. I am a governess myself. Oh, indeed said Miss Kate, but she might as well have said, "'Dear me, how dreadful!' for her tone implied it, and something in her face made Meg colour and wish she had not been so frank. Mr. Brooke looked up and said quickly, "'Young ladies in America love independence as much as their ancestors did, and are admired and respected for supporting themselves.' "'Oh, yes, of course it's very nice and proper in them to do so. We have many most respectable and worthy young women who do the same, and are employed by the nobility, 
because, being the daughters of gentlemen, they are both well-bred and accomplished, you know," said Miss Kate, in a patronizing tone that hurt Meg's pride, and made her work seem not only more distasteful, but degrading. "'Did the German song suit, Miss March?' inquired Mr. Brooke, breaking an awkward pause. "'Oh, yes. It was very sweet, and I'm much obliged to whoever translated it for me.' And Meg's downcast face brightened as she spoke. "'Don't you read German?' asked Miss Kate, with a look of surprise. "'Not very well. My father who taught me is away, and I don't get on very fast alone, for I've no one to correct my pronunciation." "'Try a little now. Here is Schiller's Mary Stuart, and a tutor who loves to teach.' And Mr. Brooke laid his book on her lap with an inviting smile. "'It's so hard I'm afraid to try,' said Meg, grateful, but bashful in the presence of the accomplished young lady beside her. "'I'll read a bit to encourage you.' and Miss Kate read one of the most beautiful passages in a perfectly correct but perfectly expressionless manner. Mr. Brooke made no comment as she returned the book to Meg, who said innocently, "'I thought it was poetry.' "'Some of it is. Try this passage.' There was a queer smile about Mr. Brooke's mouth as he opened at poor Mary's lament. Meg, obediently following the long grass-blade which her new tutor used to point with, read slowly and timidly, unconsciously making poetry of the hard words by the soft intonation of her musical voice. Down the page went the green guide, and presently, forgetting her listener in the beauty of the sad scene, Meg read as if alone, giving a little touch of tragedy to the words of the unhappy queen. If she had seen the brown eyes then she would have stopped short, but she never looked up, and the lesson was not spoiled for her. "'Very well, indeed,' said Mr. Brooke, as she paused quite ignoring her many mistakes, and looking as if he did indeed love to teach. Miss Kate put up her glass, and having taken a survey of the little tableau before her, shut her sketch-book, saying with condescension, "'You've a nice accent, and in time will be a clever reader. I advise you to learn, for German is a valuable accomplishment to teachers. Oh, I must look after Grace, she is romping.' And Miss Kate strolled away, adding to herself with a shrug. I didn't come to chaperone a governess, though she is young and pretty. What odd people these Yankees are! I'm afraid Laurie will be quite spoiled among them." "'I forgot that English people rather turn up their noses at governesses and don't treat them as we do,' said Meg, looking after the retreating figure with an annoyed expression. "'Tutors also have rather a hard time of it there, as I know to my sorrow. There's no place like America for us workers, Miss Margaret.' and Mr. Brooke looked so contented and cheerful that Meg was ashamed to lament her hard lot. "'I'm glad I live in it, then. I don't like my work, but I get a good deal of satisfaction out of it after all, so I won't complain. I only wish I liked teaching as you do.' "'I think you would if you had Laurie for a pupil. I shall be very sorry to lose him next year,' said Mr. Brooke, busily punching holes in the turf. "'Going to college, I suppose?' Meg's lips asked the question, but her eyes added, and what becomes of you?" "'Yes, it's high time he went, for he is ready, and as soon as he is off I shall turn soldier. I am needed.' "'I am glad of that,' exclaimed Meg. "'I should think every young man would want to go, though it is hard for the mothers and sisters who stay at home,' she added sorrowfully. "'I have neither, and very few friends to care whether I live or die,' said Mr. Brooke rather bitterly as he absently put the dead rose in the hole he had made and covered it up, like a little grave. Laurie and his grandfather would care a great deal, and we should all be very sorry to have any harm happen to you," said Meg heartily. "'Thank you. That sounds pleasant,' began Mr. Brooke, looking cheerful again, 
But before he could finish his speech, Ned, mounted on the old horse, came lumbering up to display his equestrian skill before the young ladies, and there was no more quiet that day. "'Don't you love to ride?' asked Grace of Amy, as they stood resting after a race round the field with the others, led by Ned. "'I dote upon it. My sister Meg used to ride when Papa was rich, but we don't keep any horses now except Ellen Tree,' added Amy, laughing. "'Tell me about Ellen Tree. Is it a donkey?' asked Grace, curiously. "'Why, you see, Joe is crazy about horses, and so am I. But we've only got an old side-saddle and no horse. Out in our garden is an apple-tree that has a nice low branch. So Joe put the saddle on it, fixed some reins on the part that turns up, and we bounce away on Ellen-tree whenever we like.' "'How funny!' laughed Grace. "'I have a pony at home, and ride nearly every day in the park with Fred and Kate. It's very nice for my friends go too, and the row is full of ladies and gentlemen." "'Dear, how charming! I hope I shall go abroad some day, but I'd rather go to Rome than the row,' said Amy, who had not the remotest idea what the row was, and wouldn't have asked for the world. Frank, sitting just behind the little girls, heard what they were saying, and pushed his crutch away from him with an impatient gesture, as he watched the active lads going through all sorts of comical gymnastics. Beth, who was collecting the scattered author-cards, looked up and said in her shy yet friendly way, "'I'm afraid you're tired. Can I do anything for you?' "'Talk to me, please. It's dull sitting by myself,' answered Frank, who had evidently been used to being made much of at home. If he had asked her to deliver a Latin oration, it would not have seemed a more impossible task to the bashful Beth, but there was no place to run to, no Joe to hide behind now and the poor boy looked so wistfully at her that she bravely resolved to try. "'What do you like to talk about?' she asked, fumbling over the cards and dropping half as she tried to tie them up. "'Well, I like to hear about cricket and boating and hunting,' said Frank, who had not yet learned to suit his amusements to his strength. "'My heart! What shall I do? I don't know anything about them,' thought Beth, and forgetting the boy's misfortune in her flurry, she said, hoping to make him talk, I never saw any hunting, but I suppose you know all about it. I did once, but I could never hunt again, for I got hurt leaping a confounded five-barred gate, so there are no more horses and hounds for me," said Frank, with a sigh that made Beth hate herself for her innocent blunder. Your deer are much prettier than our ugly buffaloes," she said, turning to the prairies for help, and feeling glad that she had read one of the boy's books in which Joe delighted. Buffaloes proved soothing and satisfactory and in her eagerness to amuse another, Beth forgot herself, and was quite unconscious of her sister's surprise and delight at the unusual spectacle of Beth talking away to one of the dreadful boys against whom she had begged protection. "'Bless her heart! She pities him, so she is good to him,' said Joe, beaming at her from the croquet ground. "'I always said she was a little saint,' added Meg, as if there could be no further doubt of it. "'I haven't heard Frank laugh so much for ever so long,' said Grace to Amy, as they sat discussing dolls and making tea-sets out of the acorn-cups. "'My sister Beth is a very fastidious girl when she likes to be,' said Amy, well pleased at Beth's success. She meant fascinating, but as Grace didn't know the exact meaning of either word, fastidious sounded well and made a good impression. An impromptu circus, fox and geese, and an amicable game of croquet finished the afternoon. At sunset the tent was struck, hampers packed, wickets pulled up, boats loaded, and the whole party floated down the river, 
singing at the tops of their voices. Ned, getting sentimental, warbled a serenade with the pensive refrain, Alone, alone, ah, woe alone, and at the lines. We are each young, we each have a heart. Oh, why should we stand this coldly apart? He looked at Meg with such a lackadaisical expression that she laughed outright and spoiled his song. How can you be so cruel to me? He whispered, under cover of a lively chorus. You've kept close to that starched-up Englishwoman all day, and now you snub me. I didn't mean to, but you looked so funny I really couldn't help it," replied Meg, passing over the first part of his reproach, for it was quite true that she had shunned him, remembering the Moffat party and the talk after it. Ned was offended and turned to Sally for consolation, saying to her rather pettishly, "'There isn't a bit of flirt in that girl, is there?' "'Not a particle. But she's a dear,' returned Sally, defending her friend even while confessing her shortcomings. "'She's not a stricken dear, anyway.' said Ned, trying to be witty, and succeeding as well as very young gentlemen usually do. On the lawn where it had gathered the little party separated with cordial good-nights and good-byes, for the Vaughns were going to Canada. As the four sisters went home through the garden, Miss Kate looked after them, saying, without the patronizing tone in her voice, "'In spite of their demonstrative manners, American girls are very nice when one knows them.' "'I quite agree with you,' said Mr. Brooke. End of chapter 12
but no one came, and he went up the hill to take an observation. A grove of pines covered one part of it, and from the heart of this green spot came a clearer sound than the soft sigh of the pines or the drowsy chirp of the crickets. "'Here's a landscape,' thought Lorry, peeping through the bushes, and looking wide awake and good-natured already. It was a rather pretty little picture, for the sisters sat together in the shady nook, with sun and shadow flickering over them, the aromatic wind lifting their hair and cooling their hot cheeks, and all the little wood-people going on with their affairs as if these were no strangers but old friends. Meg sat upon her cushion, sewing daintily with her white hands, and looking as fresh and sweet as a rose in her pink dress among the green. Beth was sorting the cones that lay thick under the hemlock nearby, for she made pretty things with them. Amy was sketching a group of ferns, and Jo was knitting as she read aloud. A shadow passed over the boy's face as he watched them, feeling that he ought to go away because uninvited, yet lingering because home seemed very lonely, and this quiet party in the woods most attractive to his restless spirit. He stood so still that a squirrel, busy with its harvesting, ran down a pine close beside him, saw him suddenly and skipped back, scolding so shrilly that Beth looked up, espied the wistful face behind the birches, and beckoned with a reassuring smile. "'May I come in, please? Or shall I be a bother?' he asked, advancing slowly. Meg lifted her eyebrows, but Joe scowled at her defiantly and said at once, "'Of course you may. We should have asked you before, only we thought you wouldn't care for such a girl's game as this.' "'I always like your games. But if Meg doesn't want me, I'll go away.' "'I've no objection, if you do something. It's against the rules to be idle here,' replied Meg gravely but graciously. "'Much obliged. I'll do anything if you'll let me stop for a bit, for it's dull as the desert of Sahara down there. Shall I sew, read, cone, draw, or do all at once? Bring on your bears. I'm ready.' And Laurie sat down with a submissive expression delightful to behold. "'Finish this story while I set my heel,' said Joe, handing him the book. "'Yes,' was the meek answer as he began doing his best to prove his gratitude for the favour of admission into the Busy Bee Society. The story was not a long one, and when it was finished he ventured to ask a few questions as a reward of merit. "'Please, ma'am, could I inquire if this highly instructive and charming institution is a new one?' "'Would you tell him?' asked Meg of her sisters. "'He'll laugh,' said Amy warningly. "'Who cares?' said Joe. "'I guess he'll like it,' added Beth. "'Of course I shall. I give you my word. I won't laugh. Tell away, Joe, and don't be afraid.' "'The idea of being afraid of you! Well, you see we used to play Pilgrim's Progress, and we have been going on with it in earnest all winter and summer.' "'Yes, I know,' said Laurie, nodding wisely. "'Who told you?' demanded Joe. "'Spirits!' "'No, I did. I wanted to amuse him one night when you were all away, and he was rather dismal.' He did like it, so don't scold, Joe," said Beth, meekly. "'You can't keep a secret. Never mind. It saves trouble now." "'Go on, please,' said Laurie, as Joe became absorbed in her work, looking a trifle displeased. "'Oh, didn't she tell you about this new plan of ours? Well, we have tried not to waste our holiday, but each has had a task and worked at it with a will. The vacation is nearly over, the stints are all done, and we are ever so glad that we didn't dawdle. Yes, I should think so." And Laurie thought regretfully of his own idle days. 
Mother likes to have us out of doors as much as possible, so we bring our work here and have nice times. For the fun of it we bring our things in these bags, wear the old hats, use poles to climb the hill, and play pilgrims as we used to do years ago. We call this hill the Delectable Mountain, for we can look far away and see the country where we hope to live some time." Joe pointed, and Laurie sat up to examine, for through an opening in the wood one could look across the wide blue river, the meadows on the other side, far over the outskirts of the great city, to the green hills that rose to meet the sky. The sun was low, and the heavens glowed with the splendor of an autumn sunset. Gold and purple clouds lay on the hilltops, and rising high into the ruddy light were silvery white peaks that shone like the airy spires of some celestial city. "'How beautiful that is!' said Laurie softly, for he was quick to see and feel beauty of any kind. "'It's often so, and we like to watch it, for it is never the same but always splendid,' replied Amy, wishing she could paint it. "'Joe talks about the country where we hope to live some time—the real country, she means, with pigs and chickens and haymaking. It would be nice, but I wish the beautiful country up there was real, and we could ever go to it,' said Beth musingly. "'There is a lovelier country even than that, where we shall go by and by, when we are good enough,' answered Meg in her sweetest voice. "'Seems so long to wait, so hard to do. I want to fly away at once, as those swallows fly, and go in at that splendid gate.' "'You'll get there, Beth, sooner or later. No fear of that,' said Joe. I'm the one that will have to fight and work and climb and wait, and maybe never get in after all. You'll have me for company, if that's any comfort. I shall have to do a deal of travelling before I come inside of your celestial city. If I arrive late, you'll say a good word for me, won't you, Beth? Something in the boy's face troubled his little friend, but she said cheerfully, with her quiet eyes on the changing clouds, If people really want to go, and really try all their lives, I think they will get in for I don't believe there are any locks on that door or any guards at the gate. I always imagine it is as it is in the picture, where the shining ones stretch out their hands to welcome poor Christian as he comes up from the river. Wouldn't it be fun if all the castles in the air which we make could come true and we could live in them?" said Joe, after a little pause. I've made such quantities it would be hard to choose which I'd have, said Laurie lying flat and throwing cones at the squirrel who had betrayed him. "'You'd have to take your favorite one. What is it?' asked Meg. "'If I tell mine, will you tell yours?' "'Yes, if the girls will, too.' "'We will. Now, Laurie.' "'After I'd seen as much of the world as I want to, I'd like to settle in Germany and have just as much music as I choose. I'm to be a famous musician myself, and all creation is to rush to hear me and I'm never to be bothered about money or business, but just enjoy myself and live for what I like. That's my favorite castle. What's yours, Meg?" Margaret seemed to find it a little hard to tell hers, and waved a break before her face, as if to disperse imaginary gnats, while she said slowly, "'I should like a lovely house, full of all sorts of luxurious things, nice food, pretty clothes, handsome furniture, pleasant people, and heaps of money. I am to be mistress of it and manage it as I like, with plenty of servants so I never need work a bit. How I should enjoy it! For I wouldn't be idle but do good and make everyone love me dearly." "'Wouldn't you have a master for your castle in the air?' asked Laurie slyly. "'I said pleasant people, you know.' And Meg carefully tied up her shoe as she spoke, so that no one saw her face. 
why don't you say you'd have a splendid wise good husband and some angelic little children you know your castle wouldn't be perfect without said blunt joe who had no tender fancies yet and rather scorned romance except in books you'd have nothing but horses inkstands and novels in yours answered meg petulantly wouldn't i though i'd have a stable full of arabian steeds rooms piled high with books and i'd write out of a magic inkstand so that my work should be as famous as laurie's music i want to do something splendid before i go into my castle something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after i'm dead i don't know what but i'm on the watch for it and mean to astonish you all some day i think i shall write books and get rich and famous that would suit me so that is my favorite dream mine is to stay at home safe with father and mother and help take care of the family said beth contentedly don't you wish for anything else asked laurie since i had my little piano i am perfectly satisfied i only wish we may all keep well and be together and nothing else i have ever so many wishes but the pet one is to be an artist and go to rome and do fine pictures and be the best artist in the world was amy's modest desire we're an ambitious set aren't we every one of us but beth wants to be rich and famous and gorgeous in every respect i do wonder if any of us will ever get our wishes said laurie chewing grass like a meditative calf i've got the key to my castle in the air but whether i can unlock the door remains to be seen observed joe mysteriously i've got the key to mine but i'm not allowed to try it hang college muttered laurie with an impatient sigh here's mine and amy waved her pencil i haven't got any said meg forlornly yes you have said laurie at once where in your face nonsense that's of no use wait and see if it doesn't bring you something worth having replied the boy laughing at the thought of a charming little secret which he fancied he knew meg coloured behind the brake but asked no questions and looked across the river with the same expectant expression which mr brooke had worn when he told the story of the night if we are all alive ten years hence let's meet and see how many of us have got our wishes or how much nearer we are then than now said joe always ready with a plan bless me how old i shall be twenty-seven exclaimed meg who felt grown up already having just reached seventeen you and i will be twenty-six teddy beth twenty-four and amy twenty-two what a venerable party said joe i hope i shall have done something to be proud of by that time but i'm such a lazy dog i'm afraid i shall dawdle joe you need a motive mother says and when you get it she is sure you'll work splendidly is she by jupiter i will if i only get the chance cried laurie sitting up with sudden energy i ought to be satisfied to please grandfather and i do try but it's working against the grain you see and comes hard he wants me to be an india merchant as he was and i'd rather be shot i hate tea and silk and spices and every sort of rubbish his old ships bring and i don't care how soon they go to the bottom when i own them going to college ought to satisfy him for if i give him four years he ought to let me off from the business but he's set and i've got to do just as he did unless i break away and please myself as my father did if there was any one to stay with the old gentleman i'd do it to-morrow laurie spoke excitedly and looked ready to carry his threat into execution on the slightest provocation 
for he was growing up very fast, and in spite of his indolent ways, had a young man's hatred of subjection, a young man's restless longing to try the world for himself. "'I advise you to sail away in one of your ships, and never come home again, till you have tried your own way,' said Joe, whose imagination was fired by the thought of such a daring exploit, and whose sympathy was excited by what she called Teddy's wrongs. "'That's not right, Joe. You mustn't talk in that way, and Laurie mustn't take your bad advice. You should do just what your grandfather wishes, my dear boy,' said Meg in her most maternal tone. "'Do your best at college, and when he sees that you try to please him, I'm sure he won't be hard on you or unjust to you. As you say, there is no one else to stay with and love him, and you'd never forgive yourself if you left him without his permission. Don't be dismal or fret, but do your duty and you'll get your reward, as good Mr. Brooke has, by being respected and loved.' "'What do you know about him?' asked Laurie, grateful for the good advice, but objecting to the lecture and glad to turn the conversation from himself after his unusual outbreak. "'Only what your grandpa told us about him, how he took good care of his own mother till she died, and wouldn't go abroad as tutor to some nice person because he wouldn't leave her, and how he provides now for an old woman who nursed his mother, and never tells anyone, but is just as generous and patient and good as he can be.' "'So he is, dear old fellow,' said Laurie heartily, as Meg paused, looking flushed and earnest with her story. It's like Grandpa to find out all about him without letting him know, and to tell all his goodness to others so that they might like him. Brooke couldn't understand why your mother was so kind to him. Asking him over with me and treating her in her beautiful, friendly way, he thought she was just perfect, and talked about it for days and days, and went on about you all in flaming style. If ever I do get my wish, you'll see what I'll do for Brooke. Begin to do something now by not plaguing his life out said Meg sharply. I can always tell by his face when he goes away. If you have been good, he looks satisfied and walks briskly. If you have plagued him, he's sober and walks slowly, as if he wanted to go back and do his work better. Well, I like that. So you keep an account of my good and bad marks in Brooke's face, do you? I see him bow and smile as he passes your window, but I didn't know you'd got up a telegraph. We haven't. Don't be angry, and oh, don't tell him I said anything. It was only to show that I cared how you get on, and what is said here is said in confidence, you know," cried Meg, much alarmed at the thought of what might follow from her careless speech. "'I don't tell tales,' replied Laurie, with his high and mighty air, as Joe called a certain expression which he occasionally wore. "'Only if Brooke is going to be a thermometer, I must mind and have fair weather for him to report.' "'Please don't be offended. I didn't mean to preach or tell tales or be silly. I only thought Joe was encouraging you in a feeling which you'd be sorry for by and by. You are so kind to us. We feel as if you were our brother and say just what we think. Forgive me. I meant it kindly." And Meg offered her hand with a gesture both affectionate and timid. Ashamed of his momentary pique, Laurie squeezed the kind little hand and said frankly, "'I'm the one to be forgiven. I'm cross and have been out of sorts all day. I like to have you tell me my faults and be sisterly, so don't mind if I'm grumpy sometimes. I thank you all the same." Bent on showing that he was not offended, he made himself as agreeable as possible, wound cotton for Meg, recited poetry to please Joe, shook down cones for Beth, and helped Amy with her ferns, proving himself a fit person to belong to the Busy Bee Society. In the midst of an animated discussion on the domestic habits of turtles, one of those amiable creatures having strolled up from the river, 
The faint sound of a bell warned them that Hannah had put the tea to draw, and they would just have time to get home to supper. "'May I come again?' asked Laurie. "'Yes, if you are good and love your book, as the boys in the primer are told to do,' said Meg, smiling. "'I'll try.' "'Then you may come, and I'll teach you to knit as the Scotchmen do. There's a demand for socks just now,' added Joe, waving hers like a big blue worsted banner as they parted at the gate. That night, when Beth played to Mr. Lawrence in the twilight, Laurie, standing in the shadow of the curtain, listened to the little David, whose simple music always quieted his moody spirit, and watched the old man, who sat with his grey head on his hand, thinking tender thoughts of the dead child he had loved so much. Remembering the conversation of the afternoon, the boy said to himself, with the resolve to make the sacrifice cheerfully, "'I'll let my castle go and stay with the dear old gentleman while he needs me, for I am all he has. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 14 Secrets Joe was very busy in the garret, for the October days began to grow chilly, and the afternoons were short. For two or three hours the sun lay warmly in the high window, showing Joe seated on the old sofa writing busily, with her papers spread out upon a trunk before her, while Scrabble, the pet rat, promenaded the beams overhead, accompanied by his oldest son, a fine young fellow who was evidently very proud of his whiskers. Quite absorbed in her work, Joe scribbled away till the last page was filled, when she signed her name with a flourish and threw down her pen, exclaiming, "'There! I've done my best. If this won't suit, I shall have to wait till I can do better.' Lying back on the sofa she read the manuscript carefully through, making dashes here and there, and putting in many exclamation points which looked like little balloons. Then she tied it up with a smart red ribbon, and sat a minute looking at it with a sober, wistful expression which plainly showed how earnest her work had been. Joe's desk up here was an old tin kitchen which hung against the wall. In it she kept her papers and a few books, safely shut away from Scrabble, who, being likewise of a literary turn, was fond of making a circulating library of such books as were left in his way by eating the leaves. From this tin receptacle Joe produced another manuscript, and putting both in her pocket, crept quietly downstairs, leaving her friends to nibble on her pens and taste her ink. She put on her hat and jacket as noiselessly as possible, and going to the back entry window, got out upon the roof of a low porch, swung herself down to the grassy bank, and took a roundabout way to the road. Once there she composed herself, hailed a passing omnibus, and rolled away to town looking very merry and mysterious. If any one had been watching her, he would have thought her movements decidedly peculiar, for on alighting she went off at a great pace, till she reached a certain number in a certain busy street. Having found the place with some difficulty, she went into the doorway, looked up the dirty stairs, and after standing stock-still a minute, suddenly dived into the street and walked away as rapidly as she came. This manoeuvre she repeated several times, to the great amusement of a black-eyed young gentleman lounging in the window of a building opposite. On returning for the third time, Joe gave herself a shake, pulled her hat over her eyes, and walked up the stairs, looking as if she were going to have all her teeth out. There was a dentist's sign, among others, which adorned the entrance, and after staring a moment at the pair of artificial jaws which slowly opened and shut to draw attention to a fine set of teeth, 
the young gentleman put on his coat, took his hat, and went down to post himself in the opposite doorway, saying with a smile and a shiver, "'It's like her to come alone. But if she has a bad time she'll need someone to help her home.' In ten minutes Joe came running downstairs with a very red face, and the general appearance of a person who had just passed through a trying ordeal of some sort. When she saw the young gentleman she looked anything but pleased, and passed him with a nod. But he followed, asking with an air of sympathy, "'Did you have a bad time?' "'Not very.' "'You got through quickly?' "'Yes, thank goodness.' "'Why did you go alone?' "'Didn't want anyone to know.' "'You're the oddest fellow I ever saw. How many did you have out?' Joe looked at her friend as if she did not understand him, then began to laugh as if mightily amused at something. "'There are two which I want to have come out, but I must wait a week.' "'What are you laughing at? You're up to some mischief, Joe,' said Laurie, looking mystified. "'So are you. What were you doing, sir, up in that billiard saloon?' "'Begging your pardon, ma'am, it wasn't a billiard saloon, but a gymnasium, and I was taking a lesson in fencing.' "'I'm glad of that.' Why? You can teach me. And then, when we play Hamlet, you can be Laertes, and will make a fine thing of the fencing scene." Laurie burst out with a hearty boy's laugh, which made several passers-by smile in spite of themselves. <laughs> I'll teach you whether we play Hamlet or not. It's grand fun, and will straighten you up capitally. But I don't believe that was your only reason for saying I'm glad in that decided way, was it now? No, I was glad that you were not in the saloon because I hope you never go to such places. Do you?" "'Not often.' "'I wish you wouldn't.' "'It's no harm, Joe. I have billiards at home, but it's no fun unless you have good players, so, as I'm fond of it, I come sometimes and have a game with Ned Moffat or some of the other fellows.' "'Oh, dear, I'm so sorry, for you'll get to liking it better and better, and will waste time and money and grow like those dreadful boys. I did hope you'd stay respectable and be a satisfaction to your friends,' said Joe, shaking her head. "'Can't a fellow take a little innocent amusement now and then without losing his respectability?' asked Laurie, looking nettled. "'That depends upon how and where he takes it. I don't like Ned and his set, and wish you'd keep out of it. Mother won't let us have him at our house, though he wants to come. And if you grow like him she won't be willing to have us frolic together as we do now.' "'Won't she?' asked Laurie anxiously. No, she can't bear fashionable young men, and she'd shut us all up in bandboxes rather than have us associate with them. Well, she needn't get out her bandboxes yet. I'm not a fashionable party and don't mean to be, but I do like harmless larks now and then, don't you? Yes, nobody minds them, so lark away. But don't get wild, will you? Or there'll be an end of all of our good times. I'll be a double-distilled saint. I can't bear saints. Just be a simple, honest, respectable boy, and we'll never desert you. I don't know what I should do if you acted like Mr. King's son. He had plenty of money but didn't know how to spend it, and got tipsy and gambled and ran away and forged his father's name, I believe, and was altogether horrid. You think I'm likely to do the same? <laughs> Much obliged. No, I don't. Oh, dear, no. But I hear people talking about money being such a temptation, and I sometimes wish you were poor. I shouldn't worry then. Do you worry about me, Joe? A little, when you look moody and discontented as you sometimes do. For you've got such a strong will. If you once get started wrong, I'm afraid it will be hard to stop you. Laurie walked in silence a few minutes, and Joe watched him, wishing she had held her tongue, for his eyes looked angry, though his lips smiled as if at her warnings. Are you going to deliver lectures all the way home? 
he asked presently. Of course not. Why? Because if you are, I'll take a bus. If you're not, I'd like to walk with you and tell you something very interesting. I won't preach any more, and I'd like to hear the news immensely. Very well, then, come on. It's a secret, and if I tell you, you must tell me yours. I haven't got any, began Joe, but stopped suddenly, remembering that she had. You know you have. You can't hide anything, so up and fast, or I won't tell, cried Laurie. Is your secret a nice one? Oh, isn't it? All about people you know, and such fun. You ought to hear it, and I've been aching to tell it this long time. Come, you begin. You'll not say anything about it at home, will you? Not a word. And you won't tease me in private? I never tease. Oh, yes, you do. You get everything you want out of people. I don't know how you do it, but you are a born wheedler. Thank you. Fire away. Well, I've left two stories with a newspaper man, and he's to give his answer next week, whispered Joe in her confidant's ear. Hurrah for Miss March, the celebrated American authoress, cried Laurie, throwing up his hat and catching it again, to the great delight of two ducks, four cats, five hens, and half a dozen Irish children, for they were out of the city now. Hush! It won't come to anything, I dare say, but I couldn't rest till I had tried, and I said nothing about it because I didn't want anyone else to be disappointed. It won't fail. Why, Joe, your stories are works of Shakespeare compared to half the rubbish that is published every day. Won't it be fun to see them in print, and shan't we feel proud of our authoress? Joe's eyes sparkled, for it is always pleasant to be believed in, and a friend's praise is always sweeter than a dozen newspaper puffs. Where's your secret? Play fair, Teddy, or I'll never believe you again," she said, trying to extinguish the brilliant hopes that blazed up at a word of encouragement. I may get into a scrape for telling, but I didn't promise not to, so I will. For I never feel easy in my mind till I've told you any plummy bit of news I get. I know where Meg's glove is. Is that all? said Joe, looking disappointed, as Laurie nodded and twinkled with a face full of mysterious intelligence. It's quite enough for the present, as you'll agree, when I tell you where it is. Tell, then. Laurie bent and whispered three words in Joe's ear, which produced a comical change. She stood and stared at him for a minute, looking both surprised and displeased, then walked on, saying sharply, How do you know? Saw it. Where? Pocket. All this time? Yes, isn't that romantic? No, it's horrid. Don't you like it? Of course I don't. It's ridiculous. It won't be allowed. My patience! What would Meg say? You are not to tell anyone. Mind that. I didn't promise. That was understood, and I trusted you. Well, I won't for the present, anyway. But I'm disgusted and wish you hadn't told me. I thought you'd be pleased. At the idea of anybody coming to take Meg away? No, thank you. You'll feel better about it when somebody comes to take you away. I'd like to see anyone try it, cried Joe fiercely. <laughs> so should I and Laurie chuckled at the idea. "'I don't think secrets agree with me. I feel rumpled up in my mind since you told me that,' said Joe, rather ungratefully. "'Race down this hill with me and you'll be all right,' suggested Laurie. No one was in sight. The smooth road sloped invitingly before her, and finding the temptation irresistible, Joe darted away, soon leaving hat and comb behind her and scattering hairpins as she ran. Laurie reached the goal first and was quite satisfied with the success of his treatment, for his Atalanta came panting up with flying hair, bright eyes, ruddy cheeks, and no signs of dissatisfaction in her face. 
Oh, I wish I was a horse. Then I could run for miles in this splendid air and not lose my breath. Oh, it was capital. But see what a guy it's made me. Go pick up my things like a cherub as you are, said Joe, dropping down under a maple tree, which was carpeting the bank with crimson leaves. Laurie leisurely departed to recover the lost property, and Joe bundled up her braids, hoping no one would pass by till she was tidy again. But someone did pass, and who should it be but Meg, looking particularly ladylike in her state and festival suit, for she had been making calls. "'What in the world are you doing here?' she asked, regarding her dishevelled sister with well-bred surprise. "'Getting leaves,' meekly answered Joe, sorting the rosy handful she had just swept up. "'And hairpins,' added Laurie, throwing half a dozen into Joe's lap. "'They grow on this road, Meg. So do combs and brown straw hats.' "'You have been running, Joe. How could you? When will you stop such romping ways?' said Meg reprovingly, as she settled her cuffs and smoothed her hair, with which the wind had taken liberties. "'Never till I'm stiff and old and have to use a crutch. Don't try to make me grow up before my time, Meg. It's hard enough to have you change all of a sudden. Let me be a little girl as long as I can.' As she spoke, Joe bent over the leaves to hide the trembling of her lips, for lately she had felt that Margaret was fast getting to be a woman, and Laurie's secret made her dread the separation which must surely come some time, and now seemed very near. He saw the trouble in her face, and drew Meg's attention from it by asking quickly, "'Where have you been calling all so fine?' "'At the gardener's, and Sally has been telling me all about Belle Moffat's wedding. It was very splendid, and they have gone to spend the winter in Paris. Just think how delightful that must be.' "'Do you envy her, Meg?' said Laurie. "'I'm afraid I do.' "'I'm glad of it,' muttered Joe, tying on her hat with a jerk. "'Why?' asked Meg, looking surprised. "'Because if you care much about riches you will never go and marry a poor man,' said Joe, frowning at Laurie, who was mutely warning her to mind what she said. "'I shall never go and marry anyone,' observed Meg, walking on with great dignity while the others followed, laughing, whispering, skipping stones, and behaving like children, as Meg said to herself, though she might have been tempted to join them if she had not had her best dress on. For a week or two Joe behaved so queerly that her sisters were quite bewildered. She rushed to the door when the postman rang, was rude to Mr. Brooke whenever they met, would sit looking at Meg with a woe-begone face, occasionally jumping up to shake and then kiss her in a very mysterious manner. Laurie and she were always making signs to one another, and talking about spread eagles, till the girls declared they had both lost their wits. On the second Saturday after Joe got out of the window, Meg, as she sat sewing at her window, was scandalized by the sight of Laurie chasing Joe all over the garden, and finally capturing her in Amy's bower. What went on there Meg could not see, but shrieks of laughter were heard, followed by the murmur of voices and a great flapping of newspapers. "'What shall we do with that girl? She never will behave like a young lady,' sighed Meg as she watched the race with a disapproving face. "'I hope she won't. She's so funny and dear as she is,' said Beth, who had never betrayed that she was a little hurt at Joe's having secrets with any one but her. "'It's very trying, but we can never make her comme il faut,' added Amy, who sat making some new frills for herself, with her curls tied up in a very becoming way two agreeable things that made her feel unusually elegant and ladylike. In a few minutes Joe bounced in, laid herself on the sofa, and affected to read. "'Have you anything interesting there?' asked Meg with condescension. 
nothing but a story, which won't amount to much, I guess," returned Joe, carefully keeping the name of the paper out of sight. "'You'd better read it aloud. That will amuse us and keep you out of mischief,' said Amy in her most grown-up tone. "'What's the name?' asked Beth, wondering why Joe kept her face behind the sheet. "'The Rival Painters.' "'That sounds well. Read it,' said Meg. With a loud, hm and a long breath, Joe began to read very fast. The girls listened with interest, for the tale was romantic and somewhat pathetic, as most of the characters died in the end. "'I like that about the splendid picture,' was Amy's approving remark as Joe paused. "'I prefer the lovering part. Viola and Angelo are two of our favorite names. Isn't that queer?' said Meg, wiping her eyes, for the lovering part was tragical. "'Who wrote it?' asked Beth, who had caught a glimpse of Joe's face. The reader suddenly sat up, cast away the paper, displaying a flushed countenance, and with a funny mixture of solemnity and excitement replied in a loud voice, "'Your sister!' "'You!' cried Meg, dropping her work. "'It's very good,' said Amy critically. "'I knew it! I knew it! Oh, my Joe, I am so proud!' And Beth ran to hug her sister and exult over this splendid success. Dear me, how delighted they all were, to be sure! How Meg wouldn't believe it till she saw the words, Miss Josephine March, actually printed in the paper! How graciously Amy criticized the artistic parts of the story, and offered hints for a sequel, which unfortunately couldn't be carried out as the hero and heroine were dead! How Beth got excited, and skipped, and sang with joy! How Hannah came in to exclaim, "'Sakes alive! Well, I never!' in great astonishment at "'That Joe's doings!' How proud Mrs. March was when she knew it! How Joe laughed with tears in her eyes as she declared she might as well be a peacock and done with it, and how the spread eagle might be said to flap his wings triumphantly over the house of March as the paper passed from hand to hand. "'Tell us about it.' "'When did it come?' "'How much did you get for it?' "'What will father say?' "'Won't Laurie laugh?' cried the family, all in one breath as they clustered about Joe for these foolish, affectionate people made a jubilee of every little household joy. "'Stop jabbering, girls, and I'll tell you everything,' said Joe, wondering if Miss Burney felt any grander over her Evelina than she did over her rival painters. Having told how she disposed of her tales, Joe added, "'And when I went to get my answer, the man said that he liked them both, but didn't pay beginners, only let them print in his paper and notice the stories. It was good practice,' he said and when the beginners improved, anyone would pay. So I let him have the two stories, and to-day this was sent to me, and Laurie caught me with it and insisted on seeing it, so I let him. And he said it was good, and I shall write more, and he's going to get the next paid for, and I am so happy, for in time I may be able to support myself and help the girls." Jo's breath gave out here, and wrapping her head in the paper, she bedewed her little story with a few natural tears for to be independent and earn the praise of those she loved were the dearest wishes of her heart, and this seemed to be the first step toward that happy end. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 15 a telegram. "'November is the most disagreeable month in the whole year,' said Margaret, standing at the window one dull afternoon, looking out at the frost-bitten garden. "'That's the reason I was born in it,' 
observed Joe pensively, quite unconscious of the blot on her nose. "'If something very pleasant should happen now, we should think it a delightful month,' said Beth, who took a hopeful view of everything, even November. "'I dare say, but nothing pleasant ever does happen in this family,' said Meg, who was out of sorts. "'We go grubbing along day after day without a bit of change and very little fun. We might as well be in a treadmill.' "'My patience, how blue we are!' cried Joe. "'I don't much wonder, poor dear, for you see other girls having splendid times, while you grind, grind, year in and year out. Oh, don't I wish I could manage things for you as I do for my heroines! You're pretty enough and good enough already, so I'd have some rich relation leave you a fortune unexpectedly. Then you dash out as an heiress, scorn everyone who has slighted you, go abroad and come home as my lady something in a blaze of splendor and elegance." "'People don't have fortunes left them in that style nowadays. Men have to work and women marry for money. It's a dreadfully unjust world,' said Meg bitterly. "'Joe and I are going to make fortunes for you all. Just wait ten years and see if we don't,' said Amy, who sat in a corner making mud-pies, as Hannah called her little clay models of birds, fruit, and faces. "'Can't wait and I'm afraid I haven't much faith in ink and dirt, though I'm grateful for your good intentions." Meg sighed and turned to the frost-bitten garden again. Joe groaned and leaned both elbows on the table in a despondent attitude, but Amy spatted away energetically, and Beth, who sat at the other window, said, smiling, Two pleasant things are going to happen right away. Marmy's coming down the street, and Laurie is tramping through the garden as if he had something nice to tell. In they both came, Mrs. March with her usual question, "'Any letter from father, girls?' and Laurie to say, in his persuasive way, "'Won't some of you come for a drive? I've been working away at mathematics till my head is in a muddle, and I'm going to freshen my wits by a brisk turn. It's a dull day, but the air isn't bad, and I'm going to take Brooke home so it will be gay inside if it isn't out. Come, Joe, you and Beth will go, won't you?' "'Of course we will.' "'Much obliged, but I'm busy.' And Meg whisked out her work-basket, for she had agreed with her mother that it was best, for her at least, not to drive too often with the young gentleman. "'We three will be ready in a minute,' cried Amy, running away to wash her hands. "'Can I do anything for you, Madam Mother?' asked Laurie, leaning over Mrs. March's chair with the affectionate look and tone he always gave her. "'No, thank you, except call at the office, if you'll be so kind, dear. It's our day for a letter and the postman hasn't been. Father is as regular as the sun, but there's some delay on the way, perhaps." A sharp ring interrupted her, and a minute after Hannah came in with a letter. "'It's one of them horrid telegraph things, Mum,' she said, handling it as if she was afraid it would explode and do some damage. At the word telegraph Mrs. March snatched it, read the two lines it contained, and dropped back into her chair as white as if the little paper had sent a bullet to her heart. Laurie dashed downstairs for water, while Meg and Hannah supported her, and Joe read aloud in a frightened voice, "'Mrs. March, your husband is very ill. Come at once. S. Hale, Blank Hospital, Washington.' How still the room was as they listened breathlessly, how strangely the day darkened outside, and how suddenly the whole world seemed to change as the girls gathered about their mother, feeling as if all the happiness and support of their lives was about to be taken from them. 
Mrs. March was again herself directly, and read the message over, and stretched out her arms to her daughters, saying in a tone they never forgot, "'I shall go at once, but it may be too late. Oh, children, children, help me to bear it!' For several minutes there was nothing but the sound of sobbing in the room, mingled with broken words of comfort, tender assurances of help, and hopeful whispers that died away in tears. Poor Hannah was the first to recover, and with unconscious wisdom she set all the rest a good example, for with her work was panacea for most afflictions. The Lord keep the dear man. I won't waste no time a-crying, but get your things ready right away, mum," she said heartily, as she wiped her face on her apron, gave her mistress a warm shake of the hand with her own hard one, and went away to work like three women in one. She's right. There's no time for tears now. Be calm, girls, and let me think." They tried to be calm, poor things, as their mother sat up, looking pale but steady, and put away her grief to think and plan for them. "'Where's Laurie?' she asked presently, when she had collected her thoughts and decided on the first duties to be done. "'Here, ma'am. Oh, let me do something!' cried the boy, hurrying from the next room whither he had withdrawn, feeling that their first sorrow was too sacred for even his friendly eyes to see. Send a telegram, saying I will come at once. The next train goes early in the morning. I'll take that." "'What else? The horses are ready. I can go anywhere, do anything,' he said, looking ready to fly to the ends of the earth. "'Leave a note at Aunt March's. Joe, give me that pen and paper.' Tearing off the blank side of one of her newly copied pages, Joe drew the table before her mother, well knowing that money for the long, sad journey must be borrowed, and feeling as if she could do anything to add a little to the sum for her father. "'Now go, dear, but don't kill yourself driving at a desperate pace. There is no need of that.' Mrs. March's warning was evidently thrown away, for five minutes later Laurie tore by the window on his own fleet horse, riding as if for his life. "'Joe, run to the rooms, and tell Mrs. King that I can't come. On the way get these things. I'll put them down. They'll be needed, and I must go prepared for nursing. Hospital stores are not always good. Beth, go and ask Mr. Lawrence for a couple of bottles of old wine. I'm not too proud to beg for father. He shall have the best of everything. Amy, tell Hannah to get down the black trunk, and Meg, come and help me find my things, for I'm half bewildered." Writing, thinking, and directing all at once might well bewilder the poor lady, and Meg begged her to sit quietly in her room for a little while, and let them work. Everyone scattered like leaves before a gust of wind, and the quiet, happy household was broken up as suddenly as if the paper had been an evil spell. Mr. Lawrence came hurrying back with Beth, bringing every comfort the kind old gentleman could think of for the invalid, and friendliest promises of protection for the girls during the mother's absence, which comforted her very much. There was nothing he didn't offer, from his own dressing-gown to himself as escort. But the last was impossible. Mrs. March would not hear of the old gentleman's undertaking the long journey, yet an expression of relief was visible when he spoke of it, for anxiety ill fits one for travelling. He saw the look, knit his heavy eyebrows, rubbed his hands, and marched abruptly away, saying he'd be back directly. No one had time to think of him again till, as Meg ran through the entry with a pair of rubbers in one hand and a cup of tea in the other, she came suddenly upon Mr. Brooke. "'I'm very sorry to hear of this, Miss March,' he said, in the kind, quiet tone which sounded very pleasantly to her perturbed spirit. "'I came to offer myself as escort to your mother.' 
Mr. Lawrence has commissions for me in Washington, and it will give me real satisfaction to be of service to her there. Down dropped the rubbers, and the tea was very near following, as Meg put out her hand, with a face so full of gratitude that Mr. Brooke would have felt repaid for a much greater sacrifice than the trifling one of time and comfort which he was about to make. "'How kind you all are! Mother will accept, I'm sure, and it will be such a relief to know that she has someone to take care of her. Thank you very, very much!' Meg spoke earnestly, and forgot herself entirely, till something in the brown eyes looking down at her made her remember the cooling tea, and lead the way into the parlour, saying she would call her mother. Everything was arranged by the time Laurie returned with a note from Aunt March, enclosing the desired sum, and a few lines repeating what she had often said before, that she had always told them it was absurd for March to go into the army, always predicted that no good would come of it, and she hoped they would take her advice the next time. Mrs. March put the note in the fire, the money in her purse, and went on with her preparations, with her lips folded tightly, in a way which Joe would have understood if she had been there. The short afternoon wore away. All other errands were done, and Meg and her mother busy at some necessary needlework, while Beth and Amy got tea, and Hannah finished her ironing with what she called a slap and a bang, but still Joe did not come. They began to get anxious and Laurie went off to find her, for no one knew what freak Joe might take into her head. He missed her, however, and she came walking in with a very queer expression of countenance, for there was a mixture of fun and fear, satisfaction and regret in it, which puzzled the family as much as did the roll of bills she laid before her mother, saying with a little choke in her voice, "'That's my contribution toward making father comfortable and bringing him home.' "'My dear, where did you get it?' Twenty-five dollars? Joe, I hope you haven't done anything rash. No, it's mine, honestly. I didn't beg, borrow, or steal it. I earned it, and I don't think you'll blame me, for I only sold what was my own. As she spoke, Joe took off her bonnet, and a general outcry arose, for all her abundant hair was cut short. Your hair! Your beautiful hair! Oh, Joe, how could you? You're one beauty! My dear girl, there was no need of this. She doesn't look like my Joe any more, but I love her dearly for it." As everyone exclaimed and Beth hugged the cropped head tenderly, Joe assumed an indifferent air, which did not deceive anyone a particle, and said, rumpling up the brown bush and trying to look as if she liked it, "'It doesn't affect the fate of the nation, so don't wail, Beth. It will be good for my vanity. I was getting too proud of my wig. It will do my brains good to have that mop taken off. My head feels deliciously light and cool, and the barber said I could soon have a curly crop, which will be boyish, becoming, and easy to keep in order. I'm satisfied, so please take the money and let's have supper." "'Tell me all about it, Joe. I am not quite satisfied, but I can't blame you, for I know how willingly you sacrificed your vanity, as you call it, to your love. But, my dear, it was not necessary and I'm afraid you will regret it one of these days," said Mrs. March. "'No, I won't,' returned Joe stoutly, feeling much relieved that her prank was not entirely condemned. "'What made you do it?' asked Amy, who would as soon have thought of cutting off her head as her pretty hair. "'Well, I was wild to do something for father,' replied Joe, as they gathered about the table, for healthy young people can eat even in the midst of trouble. I hate to borrow as much as Mother does, and I knew Aunt March would croak—she always does, if you ask for a ninepence. 
Meg gave all her quarterly salary toward the rent, and I only got some clothes with mine. So I felt wicked and was bound to have some money if I sold the nose off my face to get it. You needn't feel wicked, my child. You had no winter things, and got the simplest with your own hard earnings," said Mrs. March, with a look that warmed Joe's heart. I hadn't the least idea of selling my hair at first, but as I went along I kept thinking what I could do, and feeling as if I'd like to dive into some of the rich stores and help myself. In a barber's window I saw tails of hair with the prices marked, and one black tail, not so thick as mine, was forty dollars. It came to me all of a sudden that I had one thing to make money out of, and without stopping to think I walked in, asked if they bought hair, and what they would give for mine. "'I don't see how you dared to do it,' said Beth, in a tone of awe. Oh, he was a little man who looked as if he merely lived to oil his hair. He rather stared at first, as if he wasn't used to having girls bounce into his shop and ask him to buy their hair. He said he didn't care about mine. It wasn't the fashionable color, and he never paid much for it in the first place. The work put into it made it dear, and so on. It was getting late, and I was afraid if it wasn't done right away then I shouldn't have it done at all, and you know when I start to do a thing I hate to give it up. So I begged him to take it, and told him why I was in such a hurry. It was silly, I dare say, but it changed his mind, for I got rather excited, and told the story in my topsy-turvy way, and his wife heard, and said so kindly, "'Take it, Thomas, and oblige the young lady. I'd do as much for our Jimmy any day if I had a spire of hair worth selling.' "'Who was Jimmy?' asked Amy, who liked to have things explained as they went along. Her son, she said, who was in the army. How friendly such things make strangers feel, don't they? She talked away all the time the man clipped, and diverted my mind nicely. "'Didn't you feel dreadfully when the first cut came?' asked Meg with a shiver. I took a last look at my hair while the man got his things, and that was the end of it. I never snivel over trifles like that. I will confess, though, I felt queer when I saw the dear old hair laid on the table, and felt only the rough short ends on my head. It almost seemed as if I had an arm or leg off. The woman saw me look at it, and picked out a long lock for me to keep. I'll give it to you, Marmy, just to remember past glories by. For a crop is so comfortable I don't think I shall ever have a mane again. Mrs. March folded the wavy chestnut lock and laid it away with a short gray one in her desk. She only said, "'Thank you, dearie,' but something in her face made the girls change the subject, and talk as cheerfully as they could about Mr. Brooke's kindness, the prospect of a fine day to-morrow, and the happy times they would have when father came home to be nursed. No one wanted to go to bed when at ten o'clock Mrs. March put by the last finished job and said, "'Come, girls.' Beth went to the piano and played the father's favorite hymn. All began bravely, but broke down one by one, till Beth was left alone, singing with all her heart, for to her music was always a sweet consoler. "'Go to bed and don't talk, for we must be up early and shall need all the sleep we can get. Good night, my darlings,' said Mrs. March, as the hymn ended, for no one cared to try another. They kissed her quietly and went to bed as silently as if the dear invalid lay in the next room. Beth and Amy soon fell asleep in spite of the great trouble, but Meg lay awake, thinking the most serious thoughts she had ever known in her short life. Jo lay motionless, and her sister fancied that she was asleep, till a stifled sob made her exclaim as she touched a wet cheek. "'Jo, dear, what is it? Are you crying about father?' "'No, not now.' What then? My—my my hair! 
burst out poor Joe, vainly trying to smother her emotion in the pillow. It did not seem at all comical to Meg, who kissed and caressed the afflicted heroine in the tenderest manner. "'I'm not sorry,' protested Joe with a choke. "'I'd do it again to-morrow if I could. It's only the vain part of me that goes and cries in this silly way. Don't tell anyone. It's all over now. I thought you were asleep, so I just made a little private moan for my one beauty. How came you to be awake?' "'I can't sleep. I'm so anxious,' said Meg. Think about something pleasant and you'll soon drop off. I tried it, but felt wider awake than ever. What did you think of? Handsome faces. Eyes, particularly. Answered Meg, smiling to herself in the dark. What color do you like best? Brown. That is, sometimes. Blue are lovely. Joe laughed, and Meg sharply ordered her not to talk, then amiably promised to make her hair curl, and fell asleep to dream of living in her castle in the air. The clocks were striking midnight, and the rooms were very still, as a figure glided quietly from bed to bed, smoothing a coverlet here, settling a pillow there, and pausing to look long and tenderly at each unconscious face, to kiss each with lips that mutely blessed, and to pray the fervent prayers which only mothers utter. As she lifted the curtain to look out into the dreary night, the moon broke suddenly from behind the clouds and shone upon her like a bright benignant face which seemed to whisper in the silence, "'Be comforted, dear soul. There is always light behind the clouds.'" End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 16 Letters in the cold gray dawn the sisters lit their lamp and read their chapter with an earnestness never felt before. For now the shadow of a real trouble had come, the little books were full of help and comfort, and as they dressed they agreed to say good-bye cheerfully and hopefully, and send their mother on her anxious journey unsaddened by tears or complaints from them. Everything seemed very strange when they went down, so dim and still outside, so full of light and bustle within. Breakfast at that early hour seemed odd, and even Hannah's familiar face looked unnatural as she flew about her kitchen with her nightcap on. The big trunk stood ready in the hall, mother's cloak and bonnet lay on the sofa, and mother herself sat trying to eat but looking so pale and worn with sleeplessness and anxiety that the girls found it very hard to keep their resolution. Meg's eyes kept filling in spite of herself, Jo was obliged to hide her face in the kitchen roller more than once, and the little girls wore a grave, troubled expression, as if sorrow was a new experience to them. Nobody talked much, but as the time drew very near and they sat waiting for the carriage, Mrs. March said to the girls, who were all busied about her, one folding her shawl, another smoothing out the strings of her bonnet, a third putting on her overshoes, and a fourth fastening up her travelling-bag. "'Children, I leave you to Hannah's care and Mr. Lawrence's protection. Hannah is faithfulness itself, and our good neighbour will guard you as if you were his own. I have no fears for you, yet I am anxious that you should take this trouble rightly. Don't grieve and fret when I am gone or think that you can be idle and comfort yourselves by being idle and trying to forget. Go on with your work as usual, for work is a blessed solace. Hope and keep busy, 
and whatever happens, remember that you can never be fatherless. Yes, mother. Meg, dear, be prudent. Watch over your sisters. Consult Hannah, and in any perplexity go to Mr. Lawrence. Be patient, Joe. Don't get despondent or do rash things. Write to me often, and be my brave girl, ready to help and cheer all. Beth, comfort yourself with your music, and be faithful to the little home duties. And you, Amy, help all you can, be obedient, and keep happy safe at home. We will, Mother, we will. We will. The rattle of an approaching carriage made them all start and listen. That was the hard minute, but the girls stood it well. No one cried, no one ran away or uttered a lamentation, though their hearts were very heavy as they sent loving messages to father, remembering as they spoke that it might be too late to deliver them. They kissed their mother quietly, clung about her tenderly, and tried to wave their hands cheerfully when she drove away. Laurie and his grandfather came over to see her off, and Mr. Brooke looked so strong and sensible and kind that the girls christened him Mr. Greatheart on the spot. "'Good-bye, my darlings. God bless and keep us all,' whispered Mrs. March, as she kissed one dear little face after the other, and hurried into the carriage. As she rolled away the sun came out, and looking back she saw it shining on the group at the gate like a good omen. They saw it also and smiled and waved their hands, and the last thing she beheld as she turned the corner was the four bright faces, and behind them, like a bodyguard, old Mr. Lawrence, faithful Hannah, and devoted Laurie. "'How kind everyone is to us!' she said, turning to find fresh proof of it in the respectful sympathy of the young man's face. "'I don't see how they can help it,' returned Mr. Brooke laughing so infectiously that Mrs. March could not help smiling, and so the journey began with the good omens of sunshine, smiles, and cheerful words. "'I feel as if there had been an earthquake,' said Joe, as their neighbours went home to breakfast, leaving them to rest and refresh themselves. "'It seems as if half the house was gone,' added Meg forlornly. Beth opened her lips to say something but could only point to the pile of nicely mended hose which lay on Mother's table, showing that even in her last hurried moments she had thought and worked for them. It was a little thing, but it went straight to their hearts, and in spite of their brave resolutions they all broke down and cried bitterly. Hannah wisely allowed them to relieve their feelings, and when the shower showed signs of clearing up she came to the rescue armed with a coffee-pot. My dear young ladies, remember what your ma said, and don't fret. Come and have a cup of coffee all around, and then let's fall to work and be a credit to the family." Coffee was a treat, and Hannah showed great tact in making it that morning. No one could resist her persuasive nods, or the fragrant invitation issuing from the nose of the coffee-pot. They drew up to the table, exchanged their handkerchiefs for napkins, and in ten minutes were all right again. Hope and keep busy. That's the motto for us, so let's see who will remember it best. I shall go to Aunt March as usual. Oh, won't she lecture, though," said Joe, as she sipped with returning spirit. I shall go to my King's, though I'd much rather stay at home and attend to things here," said Meg, wishing she hadn't made her eyes so red. No need of that. Beth and I can keep house perfectly well," put in Amy, with an important air. Hannah will tell us what to do, and we'll have everything nice when you come home," added Beth, 
getting out her mop and dish-tub without delay. "'I think anxiety is very interesting,' observed Amy, eating sugar pensively. The girls couldn't help laughing, and felt better for it, though Meg shook her head at the young lady who could find consolation in a sugar-bowl. The sight of the turnovers made Joe sober again, and when the two went out to their daily tasks they looked sorrowfully back at the window where they were accustomed to see their mother's face. It was gone, but Beth had remembered the little household ceremony, and there she was, nodding away at them like a rosy-faced mandarin. "'That's so like my Beth,' said Joe, waving her hat with a grateful face. "'Good-bye, Meggie. I hope the kings won't strain to-day. Don't fret about father, dear,' she added, as they parted. "'And I hope Aunt March won't croak. Your hair is becoming, and it looks very boyish and nice,' returned Meg, trying not to smile at the curly head, which looked comically small on her tall sister's shoulders. That's my only comfort." And, touching her hat a la Laurie, away went Jo, feeling like a shorn sheep on a wintry day. News from their father comforted the girls very much, for though dangerously ill the presence of the best and tenderest of nurses had already done him good. Mr. Brooke sent a bulletin every day, and as the head of the family, Meg insisted on reading the dispatches, which grew more cheerful as the weeks passed. At first every one was eager to write, and plump envelopes were carefully poked into the letter-box by one or other of the sisters, who felt rather important with their Washington correspondence. As one of these packets contained characteristic notes from the party, we will rob an imaginary mail and read them. My dearest mother, it is impossible to tell you how happy your last letter made us, for the news was so good we couldn't help laughing and crying over it. How very kind Mr. Brooke is, and how fortunate that Mr. Lawrence's business detains him near you so long, since he is so useful to you and father. The girls are all as good as gold. Joe helps me with the sewing, and insists on doing all sorts of hard jobs. I should be afraid she might overdo, if I didn't know her moral fit wouldn't last long. Beth is as regular about her tasks as a clock, and never forgets what you told her. She grieves about father, and looks sober except when she is at her little piano. Amy minds me nicely, and I take great care of her. She does her own hair, and I am teaching her to make buttonholes and mend her stockings. She tries very hard, and I know you will be pleased with her improvement when you come. Mr. Lawrence watches over us like a motherly old hen, as Joe says, and Laurie is very kind and neighborly. He and Joe keep us merry for we get pretty blue sometimes, and feel like orphans, with you so far away. Hannah is a perfect saint. She does not scold at all, and always calls me Miss Margaret, which is quite proper, you know, and treats me with respect. We are all well and busy, but we long day and night to have you back. Give my dearest love to Father, and believe me, ever your own, Meg." This note, prettily written on scented paper, was a great contrast to the next which was scribbled on a big sheet of thin foreign paper, ornamented with blots and all manner of flourishes and curly-tailed letters. My precious Marmy, Three cheers for dear father! Brooke was a trump to telegraph right off and let us know the minute he was better. I rushed up Garrett when the letter came, and tried to thank God for being so good to us, but I could only cry and say, I'm glad! I'm glad! Didn't that do as well as a regular prayer? 
for I felt a great many in my heart. We have such funny times, and now I can enjoy them, for everyone is so desperately good it's like living in a nest of turtle-doves. You'd laugh to see Meg head the table and try to be motherish. She gets prettier every day, and I'm in love with her sometimes. The children are regular archangels, and I—well, I'm Joe and never shall be anything else. Oh, I must tell you that I came near having a quarrel with Laurie. I freed my mind about a silly little thing, and he was offended. I was right, but I didn't speak as I ought, and he marched home, saying he wouldn't come again till I begged pardon. I declared I wouldn't, and got mad. It lasted all day. I felt bad and wanted you very much. Laurie and I are both so proud it's hard to beg pardon. But I thought he'd come to it, for I was in the right. He didn't come, and just at night I remembered what you'd said when Amy fell into the river. I read my little book, felt better, and resolved not to let the sun set on my anger, and ran over to tell Laurie I was sorry. I met him at the gate, coming for the same thing. We both laughed, begged each other's pardon, and felt all good and comfortable again. I made a poem yesterday when I was helping Hannah wash, and as father likes my silly little things, I put it in to amuse him. Give him my lovingest hug that ever was, and kiss yourself a dozen times for your topsy-turvy Joe. A Song from the Suds Queen of my tub, I merrily sing, while the white foam rises high, and sturdily wash and rinse and wring, and fasten the clothes to dry. Then out in the free fresh air they swing, under the sunny sky. I wish we could wash from our hearts and souls the stains of the weak away, and let water and air by their magic make ourselves as pure as they. Then on the earth there would be indeed a glorious washing day. Along the path of a useful life will heartsease ever bloom. The busy mind has no time to think of sorrow or care or gloom, and anxious thoughts may be swept away as we bravely wield a broom. I am glad a task to me is given, to labor at day by day, for it brings me health and strength and hope, and I cheerfully learn to say, head you may think, heart you may feel, but hand you shall work all way. Dear Mother, there is only room for me to send my love, and some pressed pansies from the root I have been keeping safe in the house for father to see. I read every morning, try to be good all day and sing myself to sleep with father's tune. I can't sing Land of the Leal now. It makes me cry. Everyone is very kind, and we are as happy as we can be without you. Amy wants the rest of the page, so I must stop. I didn't forget to cover the holders, and I wind the clock and air the rooms every day. Kiss dear father on the cheek he calls mine. Oh, do come soon to your loving little Beth. Ma chère mamma, we are all well. I do my lessons always and never corroborate the girls. Meg says I mean contradict, so I put in both words and you can take the properest. Meg is a great comfort to me and lets me have jelly every night at tea. It's so good for me, Joe says, because it keeps me sweet-tempered. Laurie is not as respectful as he ought to be now I am almost in my teens. He calls me chick and hurts my feelings by talking French to me very fast when I say merci or bonjour as Hattie King does. The sleeves of my blue dress were all worn out, and Meg put in new ones, but the full front came wrong, and they are more blue than the dress. I felt bad, but did not fret. I bear my troubles well, but I do wish Hannah would put more starch in my aprons and have buckwheats every day. Can't she? Didn't I make that interrogation point nice? 
Meg says my punctuation and spelling are disgraceful, and I am mortified, but dear me, I have so many things to do. I can't stop. Adieu. I send heaps of love to Papa, your affectionate daughter, Amy Curtis March. Dear Miss March, I just drop a line to say we get on first rate. The girls is clever and fly round right smart. Miss Meg is going to make a proper good housekeeper. She has the liking for it and gets the hang of things surprising quick. Joe do's beat owl for going ahead, but she don't stop to calculate first, and you never know where she's like to bring up. She done out a tub of clothes on Monday, but she starched em afore they was ranched, and blew the pink calico dress till I thought I should die a laughin. Beth is the best of little creeters, and a sight of help to me, being so forehanded and dependable. She tries to learn everything, and really goes to market beyond her years. Likewise keeps count, with my help, quite wonderful. We have got on very economical so far. I don't let the girls have coffee only once a week, according to your wish, and keep em on plain wholesome vittles. Amy does well without frettin, wearin her best clothes and eatin sweet stuff. Mr. Lowry is as full o' dildos as usual, and turns the house upside down frequent, but he heartens the girls, so I let em have full swing. The old gentleman sends heaps of things, and is rather wearin, but means well, and it ain't my place to say nothin. My bread is rise, so no more at this time. I send my duty to Mr. Monch, and hope he's seen the last of his pneumonia. Yours respectful, Hannah Mullet. Head nurse of Ward Number 2. All serene on the Rappahannock. Troops in fine condition, commissary department well conducted, the home guard under Colonel Teddy, always on duty, Commander-in-Chief General Lawrence reviews the army daily, Quartermaster Mullet keeps order in camp, and Major Lyon does picket duty at night. A salute of twenty-four guns was fired on receipt of good news from Washington, and a dress parade took place at headquarters. Commander-in-Chief sends best wishes, in which he is heartily joined by Colonel Teddy. Dear Madam, The little girls are all well. Beth and my boy report daily. Hannah is a model servant, and guards pretty Megan like a dragon. Glad the fine weather holds. Pray make Brook useful, and draw on me for funds if expenses exceed your estimate. Don't let your husband want anything. Thank God he is mending. Your sincere friend and servant, James Lawrence. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 17 Little Faithful For a week the amount of virtue in the old house would have supplied the neighborhood. It was really amazing, for everyone seemed in a heavenly frame of mind, and self-denial was all the fashion. Relieved of their first anxiety about their father, the girls insensibly relaxed their praiseworthy efforts a little, and began to fall back into old ways. They did not forget their motto, but hoping and keeping busy seemed to grow easier, and after such tremendous exertions they felt that endeavour deserved a holiday, and gave it a good many. Joe caught a bad cold through neglect to cover the shorn head enough, and was ordered to stay at home till she was better, for Aunt March didn't like to hear people read with colds in their heads. 
Joe liked this, and after an energetic rummage from garret to cellar, subsided on the sofa to nurse her cold with arsenicum and books. Amy found that housework and art did not go well together, and returned to her mud-pies. Meg went daily to her pupils, and sewed, or thought she did, at home. But much time was spent in writing long letters to her mother, or reading the Washington dispatches over and over. Beth kept on, with only slight relapses into idleness or grieving. All the little duties were faithfully done every day, and many of her sisters also, for they were forgetful, and the house seemed like a clock whose pendulum was gone a-visiting. When her heart got heavy with longings for mother, or fears for father, she went away into a certain closet, hid her face in the folds of a dear old gown, and made her little moan, and prayed her little prayer quietly by herself. Nobody knew what cheered her up after a sober fit, but every one felt how sweet and helpful Beth was, and fell into a way of going to her for comfort or advice in their small affairs. All were unconscious that this experience was a test of character, and when the first excitement was over, felt that they had done well and deserved praise. So they did, but their mistake was in ceasing to do well, and they learned this lesson through much anxiety and regret. "'Meg, I wish you'd go and see the Hummels. You know Mother told us not to forget them,' said Beth, ten days after Mrs. March's departure. "'I'm too tired to go this afternoon,' replied Meg, rocking comfortably as she sewed. "'Can't you, Joe?' asked Beth. "'Too stormy for me with my cold.' "'I thought it was almost well.' "'It's well enough for me to go out with Lori, but not well enough to go to the Hummels,' said Joe, laughing, but looking a little ashamed of her inconsistency. "'Why don't you go yourself?' asked Meg. "'I have been every day, but the baby is sick and I don't know what to do for it. Mrs. Hummel goes away to work, and Lotkin takes care of it, but it gets sicker and sicker.' and I think you or Hannah ought to go." Beth spoke earnestly, and Meg promised she would go to-morrow. "'Ask Hannah for some nice little mess and take it round, Beth. The air will do you good,' said Joe, adding apologetically, "'I'd go, but I want to finish my writing.' "'My head aches and I'm tired, so I thought maybe some of you would go,' said Beth. "'Amy will be in presently, and she will run down for us,' suggested Meg. So Beth lay down on the sofa, the others returned to their work, and the Hummels were forgotten. An hour passed. Amy did not come, Meg went to her room to try on a new dress, Joe was absorbed in her story, and Hannah was sound asleep before the kitchen fire, when Beth quietly put on her hood, filled her basket with odds and ends for the poor children, and went out into the chilly air with a heavy head and a grieved look in her patient eyes. It was late when she came back and no one saw her creep upstairs and shut herself into her mother's room. Half an hour after, Joe went to mother's closet for something, and there found little Beth sitting on the medicine-chest, looking very grave, with red eyes and a camphor bottle in her hand. "'Christopher Columbus! What's the matter?' cried Joe, as Beth put out her hand as if to warn her off, and asked quickly, "'You've had the scarlet fever, haven't you?' "'Years ago, when Meg did. Why?' then I'll tell you. Oh, Joe, the baby's dead." "'What baby?' "'Mrs. Hummels. It died in my lap before she got home,' cried Beth with a sob. "'Oh, my poor dear, how dreadful for you! I ought to have gone,' said Joe, 
taking her sister in her arms as she sat down in her mother's big chair, with a remorseful face. "'It wasn't dreadful, Joe, only so sad. I saw in a minute it was sicker, but Lotkin said her mother had gone for a doctor, so I took baby and let Lottie rest. It seemed asleep, but all of a sudden it gave a little cry and trembled, and then lay very still. I tried to warm its feet, and Lottie gave it some milk, but it didn't stir, and I knew it was dead.' "'Don't cry, dear. What did you do?' "'I just sat and held it softly till Mrs. Hummel came with the doctor. He said it was dead, and looked at Heinrich and Minna, who have sore throats. "'Scarlet fever, ma'am, ought to have called me before,' he said crossly. Mrs. Hummel told him she was poor and had tried to cure baby herself, but now it was too late, and she could only ask him to help the others and trust charity for his pay. He smiled then, and was kinder but it was very sad, and I cried with them till he turned round all of a sudden and told me to go home and take Belladonna right away or I'd have the fever." "'No, you won't,' cried Joe, hugging her close with a frightened look. "'Oh, Beth, if you should be sick I never could forgive myself. What shall we do?' "'Don't be frightened. I guess I shan't have it badly. I looked in Mother's book and saw that it begins with headache, sore throat, and queer feelings like mine. So I did take some Belladonna, and I feel better.' said Beth, laying her cold hands on her hot forehead, and trying to look well. "'If mother was only at home!' exclaimed Joe, seizing the book, and feeling that Washington was an immense way off. She read a page, looked at Beth, felt her head, peeped into her throat, and then said gravely, "'You've been over the baby every day for more than a week, and among the others who are going to have it, so I'm afraid you are going to have it, Beth.' I'll call Hannah. She knows all about sickness." "'Don't let Amy come. She never had it, and I should hate to give it to her. Can't you and Meg have it over again?' asked Beth, anxiously. "'I guess not. Don't care if I do. Serve me right, selfish pig, to let you go and stay writing rubbish myself,' muttered Joe, as she went to consult Hannah. The good soul was wide awake in a minute, and took the lead at once, assuring that there was no need to worry. Every one had scarlet fever, and if rightly treated nobody died, all of which Joe believed, and felt much relieved as they went up to call Meg. "'Now, I'll tell you what we'll do,' said Hannah, when she had examined and questioned Beth. "'We will have Dr. Bangs, just to take a look at you, dear, and see that we start right. Then we'll send Amy off to Aunt March's for a spell, to keep her out of home's way.' and one of you girls can stay at home and amuse Beth for a day or two. "'I shall stay, of course. I'm oldest,' began Meg, looking anxious and self-reproachful. "'I shall, because it's my fault she's sick. I told Mother I'd do the errands, and I haven't,' said Joe decidedly. "'Which will you have, Beth? There ain't no need of but one,' said Hannah. "'Joe, please.' And Beth leaned her head against her sister with a contented look which effectually settled that point. "'I'll go and tell Amy,' said Meg, feeling a little hurt, yet rather relieved on the whole, for she did not like nursing, and Joe did. Amy rebelled outright, and passionately declared that she had rather have the fever than go to Aunt March. Meg reasoned, pleaded, and commanded all in vain. Amy protested that she would not go, and Meg left her in despair to ask Hannah what should be done. Before she came back, Laurie walked into the parlour to find Amy sobbing with her head in the sofa cushions. She told her story, expecting to be consoled, 
but Laurie only put his hands in his pockets and walked about the room, whistling softly, as he knit his brows in deep thought. Presently he sat down beside her, and said in his most wheedlesome tone, "'Now be a sensible little woman and do as they say. No, don't cry, but hear what a jolly plan I've got. You go to Aunt March's, and I'll come and take you out every day, driving or walking, and we'll have capital times. Won't that be better than moping here?' "'I don't wish to be sent off as if I was in the way,' began Amy in an injured voice. "'Bless your heart, child, it's to keep you well. You don't want to be sick, do you?' "'No, I'm sure I don't. But I dare say I shall be, for I've been with Beth all the time.' "'That's the very reason you ought to go away at once, so that you may escape it. Change of air and care will keep you well, I dare say. Or if it does not entirely, you will have the fever more lightly. I advise you to be off as soon as you can, for scarlet fever is no joke, miss.' "'But it's dull at Aunt March's, and she's so cross.' said Amy, looking rather frightened. "'It won't be dull with me popping in every day to tell you how Beth is and take you out gallivanting. The old lady likes me, and I'll be as sweet as possible to her, so she won't peck at us whatever we do.' "'Will you take me out in the trotting wagon with Puck?' "'On my honour as a gentleman.' "'And come every single day?' "'See if I don't.' "'And bring me back the minute Beth is well?' "'The identical minute.' "'And go to the theatre, truly?' A dozen theatres, if we may. Well, I guess I will, said Amy slowly. Good girl. Call Meg and tell her you'll give in, said Laurie, with an approving pat, which annoyed Amy more than the giving in. Meg and Joe came running down to behold the miracle which had been wrought, and Amy, feeling very precious and self-sacrificing, promised to go if the doctor said Beth was going to be ill. How is the little dear? asked Laurie for Beth was his especial pet, and he felt more anxious about her than he liked to show. She is lying down on Mother's bed and feels better. The baby's death troubled her, but I dare say she has only got cold. Hannah says she thinks so, but she looks worried, and that makes me fidgety," answered Meg. "'What a trying world it is,' said Joe, rumpling up her hair in a fretful way. No sooner do we get out of one trouble than down comes another. There doesn't seem to be anything to hold on to when Mother's gone, so I'm all at sea." "'Well, don't make a porcupine of yourself. It isn't becoming. Settle your wig, Joe, and tell me if I shall telegraph to your mother or do anything,' asked Laurie, who had never been reconciled to the loss of his friend's one beauty. "'That is what troubles me,' said Meg. "'I think we ought to tell her if Beth is really ill. But Hannah says we mustn't, for Mother can't leave Father and it will only make them anxious. Beth won't be sick long, and Hannah knows just what to do, and Mother said we were to mind her, so I suppose we must. But it doesn't seem quite right to me." Hmm. well, I can't say. Suppose you ask Grandfather after the doctor has been. We will. Joe, go and get Dr. Bangs at once," commanded Meg. We can't decide anything till he has been. Stay where you are, Joe. I'm errand boy to this establishment," said Laurie, taking up his cap. I'm afraid you are busy," began Meg. No, I've done my lessons for the day. Do you study in vacation time? asked Joe. I follow the good example my neighbors set me, was Laurie's answer as he swung himself out of the room. I have great hopes for my boy, observed Joe, watching him fly over the fence with an approving smile. He does very well, for a boy, was Meg's somewhat ungracious answer, for the subject did not interest her. Dr. Bangs came 
said Beth had symptoms of the fever, but he thought she would have it lightly, though he looked sober over the Hummel story. Amy was ordered off at once, and provided with something to ward off danger. She departed in great state, with Joe and Laurie as escort. Aunt March received them with her usual hospitality. "'What do you want now?' she asked, looking sharply over her spectacles, while the parrot, sitting on the back of her chair, called out, "'Go away! No boys allowed here!' Laurie retired to the window, and Joe told her story. "'No more than I expected. You're allowed to go poking about among poor folks. Amy can stay and make herself useful, if she isn't sick, which I've no doubt she will be. Looks like it now. Don't cry, child. It worries me to hear people sniff.' Amy was on the point of crying, but Laurie slyly pulled the parrot's tail, which caused Polly to utter an astonished croak and call out, "'Bless my boots!' in such a funny way that she laughed instead. "'What do you hear from your mother?' asked the old lady gruffly. "'Father is much better,' replied Joe, trying to keep sober. "'Oh, is he? Well, that won't last long, I fancy. March never had any stamina,' was the cheerful reply. "'Ah! Never say die. Take a pinch of snuff. Good-bye, good-bye,' squalled Polly, dancing on her perch and clawing at the old lady's cap as Laurie tweaked him in the rear. "'Hold your tongue, you disrespectful old bird! And, Joe, you'd better go at once. It isn't proper to be gadding about so late with a rattle-pated boy like—' "'Hold your tongue, you disrespectful old bird!' cried Polly, tumbling off the chair with a bounce, and running to peck the rattle-pated boy, who was shaking with laughter at the last speech. "'I don't think I can bear it, but I'll try,' thought Amy, as she was left alone with Aunt March. "'Get along, you fright!' screamed Polly, and at that rude speech Amy could not restrain a sniff. End of chapter 17